All right, so where were you at 1.30 this morning? Now, most of you were like Steve, you were in bed. Um, I was at Lambert, waiting for flight 803 to come in from Los Angeles, California. And I tell you that for a couple of reasons. I mean, we got home and I got to bed about 3 a.m. this morning, and I want you to know that because if you notice that I kind of miss a step or you catch me doing some long blinks, um, you can understand why I'm a little bit tired. In fact, I can see pretty clearly about 10 rows deep. So if you're in the first 10 rows, if you could avoid yawning during the message, <laughs> that'd be really helpful for me because if we get going, it's gonna be tough to stop. We were there, my family was at, at Lambert to welcome Lauren home from a year in China. I know. And, and it, was, it was great, um, but you might be thinking, well, why, when you're going to preach, especially on something like giving, twice in a few hours would you sacrifice a night's sleep? Or you might be thinking, why would a 24-year-old woman with a college degree and a job leave it all and go spend a year in a poor city in China taking care of little boys and girls who have nothing. But I think that most of you know the answer, and the answer is love. My love for Lauren made my sacrifice of a few hours sleep, and it was a sacrifice, maybe a sacrifice for you too, we'll see how the rest of the message goes. <laughs> but it made that sacrifice easy to do. And Lauren's love for little boys and girls created in God's image made the sacrifices of living in China for a year, and there were plenty of sacrifices, easy for her to do. And let me tell you something that you already know, that that first greeting, that first embrace as she walked out of that gate near gate C, erased all thought of sacrifice. Missing a few hours of, of sleep to be reunited with my daughter was totally worth it. Similarly, the year that Lauren spent in China in an orphan care facility was totally worth it. It was filled with joy. It was the joy of little boys and girls who'd never seen somebody with bright red hair before. It was the joy of little boys and girls experiencing love, some of them for the first time in their lives. It was the joy of coworkers who went from being strangers to being friends to being lifelong brothers and sisters. Now, Lauren is home today sleeping. Or maybe she's watching on the live stream, depending on how the battle with jet lag is going. But I know that when you get a chance to ask her, she's going to tell you it was totally worth it. And that's because sacrifices made in love bring joy. Let me say that again. Sacrifices made in love bring joy. That's a central, important topic in what we're going to be talking about today. It should be up there. There it is. 
I just, some of you are visual learners, and I don't want you to be left behind. Look, as Christians, we know that. We know that sacrifices made in love bring joy because everything we do is based on the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made. He made the sacrifice on the cross because he so loved the world. He so loved us. And that sacrifice out of love brought him joy and it brings us eternal joy. In Hebrews 12 too, after encouraging us to run with endurance the race that God has set before us, it tells us how. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Because of the joy, he endured the cross. Disregarding its shame, he is now seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And the apostle Apostle Paul echoes the same idea in the first couple verses of Ephesians 5. He tells Christians, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, Paul doesn't leave much room for misunderstanding here. Jesus loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, and this pleases God. And you and I should follow Christ's example, specifically because we're living lives filled with love. We should do this because we're God's dear children. Now this great news of Christ's sacrifice and God's love for us and the promise of eternal joy is the gospel. It's the foundation of everything we do here at First Free, but it might not be familiar to some of you. And if that's the case, if this idea of Christ sacrificing himself for us and offering us the opportunity for eternal joy is new to you, find someone to talk to about it. At the end of the service, we'll have some people up front, and I just want to encourage you to come up and ask some questions. If you can't find somebody else, find me. I would love to talk to you about it. Because the rest of the message is not going to make much sense outside of the context of Christ's love for us and his sacrifice for us. Now, for the rest of us, if we get this principle, that sacrifices made in love bring joy, then biblical teaching about, about finances and money and treasures all make more sense. And we're going to talk about some of those biblical teachings this morning, but before we do, I want to consider the negative corollary to this statement. If sacrifices in love bring joy, then what about sacrifices made under compulsion? I believe that sacrifices that you're forced to make, that are made under compulsion, can bring resentment and rebellion. Now, Pam and I have five children. I did the math. Each child gets seven years of teenagerness. That's 35 years that Pam and I have to parent teenagers. We are 23 years down, 12 to go. So far, so good. But one of the things we've seen with our teenagers and with their friends and working with some of your kids in the youth group, some of you guys over there, um, is that if you force a teen to make a sacrifice against their will, it's not usually met with joy. 
It's usually met with resentment and rebellion. And, and here's, here's the third point. So here's what we've got so far. Sacrifices made in love bring joy. Sacrifices made under compulsion produce resentment and rebellion. And this one should be obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. Giving money to the church is a sacrifice. Now, I learned this lesson at 10. My mom gave me an allowance. I think it was $5 a month. And she required me to give 50 cents back to the church. Um, Under the implied threat, or maybe the explicit threat, of no allowance at all. And so... Every month, I would get my $5, and then I would put 50 cents in the offering plate, and it hurt. Now, I did the math. Um, the, the inflation calculator says that that 50 cents 45 years ago, would you believe that it's worth $27 today? No, it's not. It's... <laughs> I asked if you would believe that. It's, it's worth $2.70 today. Still, for a 10-year-old, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And I was, I was a 10-year-old. I was a Christian. I'd accepted Christ. Um, I was trying to do my 10-year-old best to live a Christian life, but I'm going to tell you that I did not make that 50-cent gift out of love. And it brought no joy. In the intervening... 45 years, a lot has changed. School and jobs and marriage and kids and giving. And Pam and I have been able to give to the church out of our love for God and our love for others, and it's brought joy. There's no resentment. There's, I hope, no rebellion. And because of that, I want to just take a personal moment and say to my mom, who I think is probably watching on the live stream from California, thank you. I really appreciate now the lessons that you taught me at 10. Last week, Adam did a great job of really kicking off this four-week series on the almighty dollar and talking about the, the scriptures, the Bible teachings that have to do uh, extensively with how we deal with money and possessions and treasure and how that reinforces where our priorities are. If you missed last week, and I'm not saying that just because he's my boss, it would be really good to go back and watch last week's sermon because it really does provide the foundation not only for this week, but also for the next two weeks. I like the way that Pastor Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, it's impossible to become a fully developed follower of Jesus without also becoming a fully devoted steward of your resources. This is an incredibly important area for our growth as disciples. And toward the end of Adam's message last week, he he said the order that we as Christians should approach money is to give first and then to save and then to spend. In the next two weeks, Adam's going to talk about saving and about spending, and this week we're going to be tackling the topic of giving. 
In preparation, I read a book called Maximize by a pastor named Nelson Searcy. And Pastor Searcy in this book describes four giving transitions, four transitions that we go through as disciples of Christ in terms of how we give. And I want to talk about those four transitions and do a little bit of explanation about how we do that here at First Free. So the first of those transitions is from not giving to giving. Seems pretty straightforward. At some point, whether forced by your mom or moved by the Spirit, or it might be a, a sermon or an opportunity to give in an area that you really care about, or it might be learning more about how the church depends on contributions. It might even be a sermon on the four giving transitions. Who knows? But at some point, we each decide to begin giving. And what we know is from the data that about half of the people that regularly attend First Free don't give financially. Now, I've got to make a couple of observations here. The first is, I don't know what you give. When I talk about data analysis throughout this sermon, um, it's done with a file that is all numbers and no names. Okay? Um, I can see how much a different giving units give, but I don't know who that goes, who that comes from. The second thing is we don't want to coerce or compel, right? If, if sacrifice under compulsion brings resentment and rebellion, we definitely don't want to do that. And it's our, it's our desire to never get there. In fact, when I was young, I saw a TV preacher who at one point tied his necktie around his forehead and forced the band to play the same song over and over, shouting periodically, play it again, until they reach their giving targets. Now, the ushers are locking the doors as we, no. <laughs> In my notes, I wrote, God help us to never cross that line into compulsion or coercion or manipulation. And in reviewing my notes, Adam just wrote, amen. That's not us. May it never be. The third thing is that there might be lots of reasons that people come to this church and don't give. I could think of at least three. The first is you're new. And you still haven't decided, is this my home? Is this the place that I want to be a part of the fellowship? Uh, is this where I want to give? If that's you, we don't want to generate resentment and rebellion. You are not compelled to give. In fact, take your time. Or you may have not been asked to give, at least not for a long time. And if that's the case, cool. I've got good news for you. That's going to end in a few minutes. Or you may have serious reservations about how the church will care for the money and use the money. I mean, we have lots of examples about organizations that have misused gifts or misled givers. And how do we know that First Free won't be the next example of that? Now, a year ago, my answer to that question would have had a lot to do with how we need to trust God and we need to trust the church. And those are both really important. 
But now that I've been working at the church for the last 10 months, and I'm part of the team that's responsible for overseeing the gifts and overseeing the expenses, I can give you a much more detailed answer. And so we're going to do that for a few minutes here. Um, the Evangelical Council for Financial Account... Nope. The Evangelical Council... They'll edit that out, don't worry. The Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, or ECFA, not to be confused with EFCA, is a third-party organization that has published a set of standards for best practices of churches with regard to financial stewardship. And I want to go through their seven standards with you and point out how First Free Church meets or exceeds each of those. Let's do it. First standard is doctrine. Churches need to operate according to biblical truths and practices. Now, this is foundational for us here at First Free. In fact, not just in the area of giving, but in every area, in everything we do, if you ever suspect that we are operating in a way that is counter to biblical principles or biblical teaching, let me know, let another staff member know, talk to an elder, because we are committed to the Bible being the foundation and the structure of everything that we do. Standard number two, governance. The ECFA says we need to be governed by a responsible, independent board. Now, I, I scratched a joke about how responsible some of our elders are. But, in truth, we have an elder board of nine members. Only Adam, our senior pastor, is an employee of the church. The other eight are independent and oversee and govern all aspects of the church, including the way that we receive money and the way that we use our money. Standard three says that we need financial oversight. Specifically, we have to undergo an annual review of all financial statements. And we do this. In fact, we have an external firm that comes in and does a two-day on-site review. And we just finished that last month. We got the preliminary report. There are no material or significant deviations. Now, that's been the case every year that I've looked back. We do a good job with that. How about standard four? Um, we're supposed to use the resources in compliance with laws. We do that. We haven't broken any laws um, that I'm aware of. Transparency. We must provide financial statements upon request. We actually do this at the annual meeting. We print out copies of the, annual, of the financial statements, and then we pass them out. And if you would like a copy of the financial statement, just shoot a note to the office or give us a call and we'll make sure that you get one. Standard six says compensation setting and related party transactions need to be handled with integrity and conform to best practices. Every year we look at every compensation package for every employee and we hold it up against both national and regional norms for like jobs to make sure that we're paying fairly and appropriately. Now, standard seven is a doozy. In fact, they divided it into five substandards because they really didn't want 11 standards. And all of standard seven has to do with stewardship of those charitable gifts. So 7.1 is truthfulness and communication. When I tell you in a few minutes where the money goes, 
I'm giving you the truth that is independently audited and, um, and governed by an independent board. 7.2 has to do with giver expectations and intent. That means that when you give us money that's, that's dedicated to some purpose, we're committed to spend it for that purpose, like benevolence or outreach. Um, 7.3, charitable gift communication. When you give, you will get a statement at the end of the year with a thank you letter and a list of all of your donations. We do that every year in January. 7.4, acting in the best interest of givers. Okay, I'm going through these pretty fast. I want to slow down here. Acting in the best interest of givers. Some of you were here about a year ago when I got to preach on Mark 12. The woman who gave everything she had to live on into the, into the offering at the temple. And at the time, I said that Jesus was actually using that as an example of condemnation for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to set up a compelling system for that woman to have to give everything that she had. In fact, he used the expression devouring widows' houses in that section. And this guideline indicates that we don't ever want to do that. In fact, the language in the guideline talks about not accepting gifts that put people in financial jeopardy or put their financial future at risk. We just don't do it. 7.5 says percentage compensation for securing charitable gifts, and that just means that nobody gets paid for how much they raise. It creates a whole bunch of conflict of interest that produce a lot of incentive to do bad things for the other standards. This next chart shows you where the money goes here at First Free. This is from the annual meeting just um, a few months ago. And if you're like me, you might be tempted to divide these pie pieces into ministry-related activities and overhead and, and non-ministry-related activities. At least, that's how I thought before I started working here. But what I've recognized as I've been behind the curtain is every single dollar that we spend, we do our very best to make sure that it's going for the purpose of advancing Christ's gospel, sharing Christ's love, and growing together in maturity. Every dollar. We work as hard on making sure that every maintenance dollar goes to the building of the kingdom as we do every dollar in family ministries, kid connection, missions, and outreach. Let's take a look at where we are six months into the year. Now, it's in your bulletin. You have this chart. And this is through the end of June. If you look at that second column that says actual for 2019, you see that contributions are ahead of last year and that they're more ahead of last year than expenses, which are right on track with last year, maybe just a little bit ahead. If we compare it to the ministry needs budget, which represents how much we actually need to run the ministries that we currently have, you'll see that giving is then, again, ahead of that, and that expenses are slightly below that. We've done a good job of controlling expenses in line with what gives. I want to make three comments about this. The first is, you guys are incredibly generous. 
This is not a situation where we're in trouble or we can't pay our bills. In fact, year after year, the givers in this church do an amazing job of giving. The second thing is that you'll notice in every one of those columns, the amount given is less than the expenses year to date. In a normal organizational system, that should be a point of concern. But that has everything to do with the fact that our giving peaks in December. And so we spend according to a 12-month calendar, but we know that in December, we will see about twice the normal monthly giving, as some people just give at year end. The third thing I want to point out is that we'd like to spend more money. In fact, that's what's represented by that far right column which says God's eyes dreams. Because I pointed out that every dollar goes to sharing Christ's love and spreading the gospel and growing together in maturity as disciples, that means that we've got ideas, we've got ministries that are ready to spend more as the giving comes in. But we are celebrating the faithfulness of this congregation. All right. So, let's, we've covered step one. We only have three left. Step one is going from not giving to giving something, right? Step two is going from giving occasionally or sporadically to giving regularly. From the giving data, we can see that about a third of the people that give to the church do so occasionally or sporadically. Now, as you grow in stewardship, moving to regular giving is an important step. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, Paul is writing to the believers in the church at Corinth and addressing questions that they've asked him. He says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. And we learned several things from the first part of this section. Um, We learned that there's a collection being made for the church in Jerusalem. We learned that even in the first century, there were questions about how money should be collected and how it should be used. And we learned that Paul has established guidelines that he's sharing with the churches around the region for how they should participate in this offering. Offering. Here are his directions. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Paul tells the Corinthian church, and apparently the Galatian churches as well, that they should participate. That's the first transition, give something. And he also tells them to put aside their gift on the first day of each week. He tells them not to wait and try and put it together all at once when he gets there. And these timing instructions are Paul's way of teaching them the principle of regular systematized giving. And that principle holds today. If you're giving sporadically, I encourage you to step into regular systemic giving. One of the best ways to do that is by setting up automated online giving. About 40% of the giving that comes into the church comes through automated and online mechanisms. That's up from about 30% or a little bit more just three years ago. It's really great growth. And 
Pam and I have been using automated giving of one form or another for 10 or 15 years. Um, up until last year, the way that we did it was with our bank's online bill pay. And some of you do that. Um, I just set up a recurring payment out of my online bill pay, and every two weeks the bank would send the church a check, and then I came on staff and I realized that those paper checks had to be opened and processed and taken to the bank, and that it takes three or four people about a half a day every Monday to process all of the paper. And so, being so informed, I changed my giving method from online bill pay to online giving through efree.org. But wait, there's more. We are in the process of switching our software systems to a system called Planning Center. And it's so much better and cheaper and gives us more functionality that I can't take the time to tell you how awesome it is. Um, I was just waiting for some of the staff that are going through the system transition to laugh there. But it means that if you've already set up online giving under the old system, that we'll be sending you instructions between now and the end of the year that explain how to switch that online gift over to the new planning center system. Um, nothing to do right now. The office is obviously available to help you with that transition. I did it this week. I moved from the old online giving system to planning center, and it was really painless. Now, if you haven't, if you're part of that 60% that haven't set up online giving, I'd love to just show you how easy that is. And so I'm going to do it right now if I can make this work. So open up a web browser. You might have to Google Google, and then it'll open it up. Type in efree.org slash give. And that will take you to our church's giving page. There's some information about giving, but what you need to focus on is that big blue Give Now button. If you click on that, it's going to take you to the Planning Center giving page. And this is where you can set up either one-time or recurring gifts. We're going to set up a recurring gift. So the first thing that you do is put in the amount that you want to give. Let's see. I think I decided on... Yeah, I think I decided on $100. Um, there was some fear that I would forget to undo this and that every time I practiced, I would add another $100 to the recurring gift. You have a choice of one time or regularly. We're doing regularly here. So we'll click on that. And then they're going to ask you, well, when do you want to do it? So the frequency that I get paid is every other week. You could choose monthly or twice monthly as well. But I'm going to choose every other week. And then we get paid on Thursdays. So I'm going to say, why don't you do it every other week on Thursday? And then it's going to say, great, when do you want to start this? I'll start it on August 1st. Now, I'm already logged into Planning Center here, and so you'll see my two giving methods that I've set up. One is a debit card, and the other is a direct withdrawal from my bank account called an ACH. And I'm going to choose the ACH and encourage you to do the same thing. And that's because the fee of 25 cents to do an ACH is compared with a fee of 2.5% to do a credit card or debit card um, donation. You can see that I've checked the box to change my gift to $100.25, so I'm covering the fee. I click the Give button, 
and it tells me thank you for setting up the recurring gift. It's that easy. In fact, this would be something that would be wonderful for you to do this afternoon while I'm taking a nap. Because <laughs> I need it. In my first full year on staff, we canceled church services at least three times for snow. And our giving on those weeks dropped by about 50%. Do you know what 50% didn't go away? It, the people that had set up online giving. So if your desire is to consistently support what we're doing for the kingdom here with the church, there's really no better way than to set up online giving. It really does help with planning and executing the ministries. All right, our third transition is from giving regularly to giving proportionally. Let's go back to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 16.2, this time in the NIV translation, where it says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now look at that phrase, in keeping with your income. The new, the new Living Translation translates this, a portion of the money you have earned. Now, as you might have picked up from my earlier example, I grew up in a Christian tradition that preached and practiced tithing. And tithing is the practice of giving one-tenth of your income to the church, and it's based on a bunch of biblical instructions from the Old Testament. Um, and because of that background, Pam and I have used 10% as the starting point for our proportional giving ever since we got married. In the meantime, I've learned a few things about the biblical concept of tithing. First, I learned that observant Israelites were required to pay two different annual tithes and a third tithe every three years. And biblical scholars who've looked at it and done the math say that this equated to an annual giving closer to 23% than 10%. Secondly, there's only one recorded instance of Jesus talking about tithe. And there he's using it to condemn the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for their loveless legalism. Uh, it's in Matthew 23, 23, where it says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now Jesus does say you should tithe, yes, but. And some of the sources I've read say there, Jesus said you should tithe and that settles it. But others point to places like Matthew 5, 23, and 24, where Jesus says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, then leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And everyone teaches that in this passage, Jesus is focused here on the importance of being reconciled. Nobody suggests that when Jesus says, then come and offer your sacrifice, that he's mandating a continuation of animal sacrifices for the church. In both cases, Jesus is speaking to Jews who are still living in the Old Testament system. I find this really interesting to think about. 
Third, Paul, in the passage we just studied and elsewhere, when he's instructing the early church about giving, never mentions tithe. He clearly intends for the giving to be individual and regular and proportional. He's a scholar of the Hebrew law, so he knows about the tithe, and still he never mentions it. Instead, Paul does make mention of the law in areas like Galatians 5.1, and it seems to be the tone that he's taking with giving, too. He says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now, here's one of the things that I love about First Free. We don't divide over convictions. And how much you should give proportionally is one of those convictions. In fact, last year we had a series called Undivided, and it went in depth about what are the things that we will divide over and what are the things that we won't divide over. And if you haven't seen that series and you're interested in this topic, I would encourage you to go to efree.org undivided and watch those sermons. They're incredibly helpful. And they form the approach that we take to maintaining the truth and protecting community. So check that out. Paul does, by the way, give us some instructions about how we should give. He says, you must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So I'm just encouraging you to give proportionally. If you want your proportion to be 10%, great. If you want it to be 23%, awesome. Unless, of course, that puts your financial future in jeopardy, then don't. Um, but Paul is clear that we want to give proportionally. All right, we're almost done. The final transition might just be my favorite. It's the transition from giving proportionally to giving extraordinarily. And for most of us, or many of us in St. Louis County, God has blessed us with abundance. In the next two weeks, Adam's going to talk about saving and about spending and how important those are. But the truth is that some of us will reach a point where we've got enough to spend for our needs, and we've saved enough, and so everything else that God gives us, we can use to give back to the purpose of the kingdom. Before starting here, I got a chance over the last couple of years to work with an organization called C12, which is made up of Christian CEOs and Christian business owners who are building great businesses for a greater purpose, namely to advance the kingdom of God. And many of them are living on a small fraction of what they bring in, 10% or less, and giving 90% or more back to building the kingdom. If you own a business, or if you're a CEO or a senior executive, I would encourage you to look into joining a C12 group. Shoot me an email at kevin at efree.org, and I'll get you some information on that because it's so exciting to cross over into that area of extraordinary giving. I want you to see one example. This is a husband and wife, Cheryl and Bill. This is a husband and wife, Bill and Cheryl, and they're gonna share what they did in the area of extraordinary giving.
We were partners in a company called National Pump and Compressor. The company was approached by one of the, if not the largest rental company in the world, and they wanted to buy our company. And so they bought the pump division of the company for a significant amount of money. To say that we were blessed it just doesn't seem like enough. And so, I, you know, we wanted to be good stewards of what we've been given. You know, I was raised in church, but in my adult life, it became more of a personal relationship. When Bill and I met, he was very involved in his church. You know, his idea of giving was based on this financial commitment that you make at the beginning of the year. It wasn't a heartfelt gift as his relationship with God started growing. I think this is as great a testimony as anything is the transition that I have seen take place in him, not only with his mindset toward tithing and giving, but just the relationship with God, his desire to grow closer to God, his faithfulness. We're constantly looking for opportunities to align the things that are important to us with opportunities to give. So I reached out to our pastor and I asked him about opportunities. That's when he mentioned the Hope Center. My earliest memory of knowing what the Hope Clinic was, was driving down I-10 and seeing this little building on the side of the highway that said Hope Crisis Pregnancy Center. And then at some point, I knew that the Hope Center had moved into a larger building. What Pastor told us was that they had a balloon payment due on the mortgage of the facility. And it was like $235,000. We were only several months ahead of that deadline. The Hope Center sends out a newsletter and this article said the balloon payment is coming due and we really need some help to get this paid off unless someone wants to pay the full amount, LOL. And so we said, absolutely, that would be a great place to invest that money. It seemed like a, something we wanted to do, I wanted to do right off the bat, because there were things in our lives that um, kind of connected us to wanting to help crisis pregnancy. And we had personally experienced an unplanned pregnancy in our family. My daughter found out she was pregnant when she was 19 years old. And I remember getting the phone call. I'll never forget that day and how that felt. I felt like she'd ruined her life. I felt like, you know, she was not gonna be able to, f to finish school, but it worked out, of course, to be a wonderful blessing in our lives. So we knew that that was possible. Even though a family or a girl could just be devastated by you know, an unplanned pregnancy that, that with the right support, she can get through that. That's why it's so personal to us. That's why that we were able to get on board with this and really be passionate about it. It was a perfect fit for what we wanted to do. You could say that that was in itself a blessing. You know, initially we thought we would make the contribution, you know, anonymously. Our pastor talked to us about it and he said, people need to know that this was something that you felt led to do because God put this upon your heart and that they need to understand your heart of giving and your story and how that this had touched your own lives. So when we made the gift and we went to the banquet and we stood up and we talked a little bit about our story, a number of people in the community have come to us since then and said how much they appreciate it. 
I mean, there's a real joy you feel in helping when it's connected to something that you feel passionate about. For me, it's opened my eyes to being able to give for the rest of my life to organizations and make contributions that are more meaningful. We've been blessed and it is our joy to be able to bless other people because of what we've been given. Did you catch that? It's our joy. Sacrifices made in love bring joy. Now, I hope that some of us get the opportunity to move from regular proportional giving to extraordinary giving and experience that joy. Let's finish where we started. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us out of love. And that ultimately brought him great joy. He's the supreme example of a loving sacrifice, and we're supposed to emulate him. We're supposed to copy his example. Giving to his work through churches and through other parachurch ministries is one of the ways that we can respond in loving sacrifice to his loving sacrifice. One last thought, kind of a confession. I wrote that introductory piece about the sacrifice of sleep and meeting Lauren at the airport about 10 days ago, before I'd actually made the sacrifice and lost the sleep, because I wrote it out of the confidence that making that small sacrifice of a few hours would be totally worth the joy of that relationship. And I think that's the way it is with giving as well. We can be confident that because of the way that God teaches us through his word and the experiences of so many people, that the sacrifices we make in love will bring joy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for your teaching. Thank you that you call us to copy your life of sacrifice in ways that are so much smaller than what you gave, but that you want to bless us through them. We give you all of the praise and all of the glory, and we thank you for working in our lives. In your name, amen.